Right now, though, Canada and the U.S. are fighting over the Arctic seafloor, and it all has to do with the continental shelf and how the border between northern Alaska, if you can picture it, and Canada's vast northern region are drawn up. What is really at stake here? Dr. Robert Hubert, professor at the University of Calgary Centre for Military Security and Strategic Studies, joining us this afternoon. Professor Hubert, thanks so much for your time. It's always my pleasure, Angela. I think you have to almost imagine the old-style globes that I still have at my house. And you look at the Arctic Ocean and all the countries that really touch and share the Arctic Ocean to truly get an idea of what is at stake here, don't you, Rob? Oh, absolutely. And, and what complicates it, of course, is probably in a couple of years, each and every one of those globes is going to be obsolete as the ice cap, at least in the summer, will be melting. You know, Reed Wilkins, my sports guy, when I teased that you were coming up and we're talking about the, the Arctic seafloor, and, and Reed even said, oh, who cares about a seafloor? Oh, countries care about a seafloor, don't they? Why is the U.S. and Canada making sure that one or the other has control over it? Well, it's two reasons. Uh, first of all, international law allows you to do this, and nations do never act in a vacuum. Um, they will always maximize whatever territorial complaint, uh, controls they have. That's just the nature of what states do. Uh, the second factor is oil and gas. Um, what this is really about is who gets to control the resources on the soil and subsoil. So it doesn't, it doesn't pertain to fishing, it doesn't pertain to shipping, any of the things that we often think about. It's only about what you can get out of that region. Now, having said all that, of course, it's one of the most forbidable zones there possibly could be. So everyone's really thinking in future developments and, and definitely not what's going to happen now. But again, the future has a nasty habit of getting here so much quicker than we anticipate. So how is this all determined then? As you mentioned, international nation, international control, international laws, how do we determine? Because there is a border there now, isn't there? Well, there's a land border, but land. Um, uh, that's agreed upon. But as soon as you move out of the land, the all of the maritime borders between Canada and the United States when it comes to Alaska and uh, Yukon um, are disagreed upon. We disagree on what's called the territorial sea, and that's 12 nautical miles. We disagree on the drawing of a economic zone. It's called the exclusive economic zone, and that goes out to 200 nautical miles. And now from when we're able to see the overlap of what we and the United States have in terms of the continental self, there's overlap. And, and basically, there is a fairly significant zone of difference between the two countries. How do we then come to an agreement? Is, is this in the hands of um, the United Nations? No. Uh, one of the things, and you know, the problem is it's a very complex process. It's often difficult for people to sort of wrap their, their minds about, around some of the concepts, but just sort of cut to the chase. We have an international treaty, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, which came into effect in 1982. Canada was a major architect of many of the elements within it, so we gained em enormously from it. 
This international treaty says that there is such a thing as a continental shelf. It said a continental shelf existed before the treaty. Fine. Okay, it says what you need to do, though, is there has to be a peaceful and scientific way of dividing it up. And so it's Article 76, and it says, okay, if you can determine that you have a continental shelf, you have to do the science to show that that is, in fact, the case. Once you do the science, you then have to submit the science to a council of experts that are hosted by the United Nations. It's the Convention on the Continental Shelf Limits. And these are the folks that then say, okay, did you do your science right? Do you actually have a continental shelf? And they'll say yes, no. But then it then goes to the individual nations. If you have an overlap, you are then required to peacefully pick a way of negotiating the differences. You can negotiate directly, and that's what most countries are doing nowadays. Or you can go to a whole host of bodies for arbitration, a decision, whatever. It's your choice to do it. Most countries are just directly negotiating. But the critical part, point here is you need to, first of all, show scientifically that you do have a continent. Shelf, and, and that is incredibly difficult in the North. We did it a few years ago, and the Americans have just finished doing it now. Oh, okay, and it is complicated, but isn't totally. a continental shelf the continent, let's say Canada or Alaska, and you look in the, under the water and that continent continues? Is that what the shelf is? Yeah, basically it's the extension of the continent. Yeah. And there are these criteria for how much slope, how it connects. Uh, we have, for example, we have no continental shelf off the coast of BC. We go into the deep, uh, <sighs> deep ocean, basically, so it drops right off. You know, once again, you get into the history, you know, the tectonics and right. creation of the continents and all that cool stuff. And it's just basically saying if you have this this extension of the continent that happens to be under underwater, uh, you can still utilize the resources. That is, in effect, what they're saying. Uh, Rob Hubert is my guest this afternoon, professor at the University of Calgary Center for Military Security and Strategic Studies, talking about the continental shelf in the Arctic and the fact that uh, the U.S. and Canada are trying to claim part of it, more of it. Back up on the International Treaty in the United Nations, you said the Convention of the Law of the Sea, and Canada has agreed to that? Yes, uh, we were a major uh, architect of it. Uh, we've been a strong supporter of him all along. Here's the kicker. The other country that agreed and was a major architect, they got huge results from it, was the United States. But at the very end, there was a change of government from a series of Republican and Democrat governments that had been very positive to the, the, the treaty because it favors the U.S. Ronald Reagan came and basically picked one little issue that eventually didn't even evolve and said, I can't sign it because of that issue. It was uh, mining deep sea nodules into the deep sea. And basically for reasons that we're not entirely certain why, I mean, he politicized it basically and said the U.S. isn't signing. So here's the kicker. The U.S. who greatly benefits from the convention created much of what the, the continental shelf elements were because it is not party to the convention. It can't bring its scientific evidence to the convention for approval. So under international law, it can't go ahead and resolve it with Canada or with, uh, uh, with any other countries where it might have an overlap in any other section. We're going back to Ronald Reagan days? Absolutely. The joy of international law. 
Um, you know, you could have a story on this because the deep sea nodules, just as an aside, becomes a major part of the convention. But we now suspect that the, the whole argumentation that there was, such, you know, there were these riches from deep sea nodules was actually a cover story that the Americans invented when uh, Howard Hughes was trying to, to basically seize a sunken Soviet submarine. And so they said, well, we're designing this, uh, this piece of equipment was huge to go after nodules and everybody said oh we have to we have to create a form of governance and the americans said well we 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 don't like what we agreed upon and it was a cia story we think that started the whole nodule thing uh, you know process of thinking there are nodules there's no question of nodules but the amount was probably exaggerated okay well so where do we we go from here then it doesn't sound like this is something that's going to be resolved very quickly no, it won't, for two reasons. First of all, the commission, it works on a part-time basis. Um, there's been all sorts of arguments that you needed to fund them on a full-time basis, given that every country in the world that has a continental shelf, and there's probably at least about 80 in the international system that have them, probably larger. Um, if you're actually going to do it in any meaningful basis, you need a full-time commission, but the UN has said, no, it's part-time, and it gets into funding issues. Okay, so every time a country submits, it's taking them, they get through about four or five of them per year. And so just think in terms, okay, so you've got 80 countries that are submitting at this point in time. You're getting through four or five a year. They're getting a little faster as time goes by. You see where I'm going. So even if the U.S. was a member, even if the U.S. had submitted today, uh, it would probably be about another anywhere between the estimations are between 8 to 20 years before they get to it. And so you, know, you sit there and say, okay, well, then that's, that's one reason this process is going to be very slow. The second thing, of course, is the geopolitics. Um, the assumption is that the Arctic is a peaceful zone of cooperation. Everyone will get along. And we know that that has drastically changed since 2014 and, and clearly since 2022 with the, with the Russian war in Ukraine on those two dates. And so, no, you know, everybody, of course, will say, well, that doesn't change international law. It doesn't change the cooperative nature that Russia has shown for the Arctic. But, of course, it has. And and so that's the other unknown factor that's going forward. As an aside, the American submission for its continental shelf, by the way, does not overlap with any of the Russian submission. Mm. So it's interesting to look that they were very careful to stay within what was an agreed border agreement that they had, I think it was back in 1994. They stayed within it, but of course, when it comes to Canada, they, of course, did not stay within any, any avoidance of our particular dispute. Rob, I always like you breaking things down for us. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure, Angela. I look forward to the next time. You bet. Dr. Robert Hubert, professor at the University of Calgary Center for Military Security and Strategic Studies.